Um, so can I, you know, slowly relax that? Can I not be a Buddhist scholar? Can I not be a teacher? Can I, you know, can I keep going back into, and what it is is going back into the groundless state over and over again. Because we try to make ground, this is who I am, and we try to get stability, and then we start to stagnate in that stability. We must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. Soul force. Welcome to this week's episode of the Soul Force Ones, a podcast about purpose and practice, examining how cash, or careers, activism, spirituality, and hip-hop rule everything around us. Don't forget to follow us on the socials at Soul Force Ones, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. On this week's episode, John and I chat with lecturer, meditation teacher, yoga instructor, lavender farmer, and musician, Will Duncan. Will shares about his journey of self-discovery, his years in silence at a retreat, the ability to endure the discomfort of the unknown, and so much more. Emptiness, reification, meaning-making mechanisms, and trading philosophy for raw milk. You can register free for his upcoming talk on Wednesday, February 24th at 6.30 by following the link in this episode's description. After the interview, John and I do the remix, where we take a few minutes to process some of what Will shared and make connections to other episodes of the Soul Force Ones. Are you ready? Here we go. So on the Soul Force Ones podcast, we oftentimes like to explore connections, connections between words, people, concepts, ideas. And I, I, you've done a lot of different types of work, and you have a really... A, a breadth of experience and I'm curious your connection between your practice, your purpose, your faith. And I should note that on the soul force ones, because this is sponsored by the letter P we spell faith with a PH. <laughs> so the connections between your practice, your faith, your purpose, how they're different, how they're interconnected. Gosh, you know, I don't even know. It's a it's a great question because I've never separated them out so much. So it's hard for me to then say like, oh, how is this connected to that? Um, you know, I mentioned to you uh, offline that um, I have never been a career oriented person. Uh, I've just been driven by, um, you know, I would say by a, a couple of um, hearty questions. And I would say also my life has been driven by um, kind of a profound sense of longing. And uh, so it's never, it's never seemed fragmented to me in a way where I would have to say, oh, how does this connect to that? It's just been kind of one gradual unfolding. Um, not a graceful unfolding, but one rather kind of like... Uh, you know, half out of control, flailing around, unfolding event. Well, I've, I've generally thought that the questions are more important than the answers. So can you talk about where that question comes from? What questions are you trying to answer as you approach your, your life's work? Because yeah. we also play with the idea of like inner workings and life's works. Totally. Totally. Um, you know, I was thinking about the word... Um, vocation uh vocadus uh, it comes from the latin right which means um to be called 
Uh, we get that in the word vocal, right? Uh, to, to Your vocation is something to be called to. So I feel like, I hope, uh, if I live a long life, I'll hope at the end of my life, I'll figure out what my vocation actually was. Um, you know, and I think part of that life is like slowly unfolding. Oh, what is my vocation? And, and so a lot of that being called for me is learning to listen. Um, but I had one, I had a couple events when I was young that were disruptive, not in a traumatic way, but in a way where I had to... Um, I was forced to rethink reality as I understood it in, you know, an eight-year-old mind. And, and that disruption, we could call it cognitive dissonance. And the event doesn't matter so much, but just that kind of disruption has fueled me a lot um, in how I understand reality. I know that's a little abstract, so let me, let me make it a little more tangible. Years later, how that manifested was I was in a sociology of religion class in high school, 11th grade, and the teacher was talking about role loss. And role loss is that experience you go through when you begin to lose some of the roles you've associated yourself with, like, you know, a father or student or son or, you know, um, you see it a lot when people retire and they're like, I was this person, you know, I was just, uh, you know, and I'm no longer that person and, and the, the kind of depression that sets in at that point. So I was sitting there in class. It was a really distinctive moment. And I, all of a sudden I was like, well, wait, if I experience role loss when I lose a role, who am I underneath my roles? Is there some essence of who I am that's not dependent on roles? So that really, that year, that really started to eat away at me. And, and that's what I think a good question does, is it just starts to eat away at you and starts to preoccupy you. So as I got closer to that time when my peers were starting to look at colleges and my parents were like, you think about what college you're going to go to. And I was like, I want to impose role loss on myself and see what happens. So I, I had a conversation with my dad and it didn't go well. <laughs> Luckily, he doesn't remember that. But, um, but I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to, you know, do an experiment. And, you know, uh, and it didn't go well. He said I should, uh, I could either go to college or I could join the army or something. But I, so we didn't talk about it again. But what I did was I, I, I realized, okay, how have I defined myself? It's through my possessions. I had a crazy sick vinyl collection. I mean, I was, it was unbelievable. Um, and uh, so I, I identified myself through my vinyl collection. I identified myself through playing musical instruments and, and through all these possessions I had built around myself. Um, so I thought, okay, first thing I'd have to do is sell everything I own. Second thing I'd have to do is go to a place where I didn't know anybody. And then, and then kind of in a mean way, and I regret it a little bit now, is cut myself off from my family. So I had a week-long, we call them an East Coast uh, yard sale or tag sale. I had a week-long sale, sold everything, made a couple thousand dollars, which in my mind was like I could live on for years. I was like, I'm set for life, you know? And then I grew up in Connecticut and I bought a plane ticket to California. And, um, and, and I didn't know a single person in the whole state. And this was before cell phones and stuff. So I was really just on my own. And I said goodbye to my family. 
And uh, and so that what that began really an unfolding of of and and I can progressively see my entire life is leading from one question to another, but based on that kind of foundational thing is who is the I underneath the roles. So that's really kind of led into a whole journey that five years later ended up have bringing me back to college, but in a much more fruitful way than had I just gone to college right out of school. Yeah, I love that because the other, right, the distinction mm -hmm. between career and calling, and yeah. you mentioned how life is unfolding and learning to listen. Yeah. And I love that about losing the role. And again, that question of who am I? Yeah. And you are a farmer, a musician, a yogi. You are all these things, but they don't define you. It's just like there are parts of our identity but what is it about me that makes me me beyond the skin, beyond the titles, beyond the roles? Yeah. And, um, you know, I've, I have this phrase that I've been thinking about. Ram Dass uses it where like find where you're holding your stash, you know, that little pit, little bit that you don't want to quite share, like just where you're holding now. And I was thinking about this the other day because um in some very small, humble circles, I'm known as, you know, a, a scripture teacher, a meditation teacher, a Buddhist teacher. And there's a part of my ego which has gotten attached to that. So the people that I know that don't know that about me, I can feel like that stash. I can feel that part of me that's like, oh, I want them to know that I'm, you know, influential in this world. And I can feel that, like, that bumping up against, like, I'm trying, you know, I'm which is so absurd when you think about it is like I'm I'm my identity wants to cling on to an identity as a buddhist scholar right or something like that and you can and what a thing to cling to you know i mean the absurdity of it is just so wonderful but it's like oh yeah i just noticed this the other day i was like oh yeah there's some clinging of of all of those things you mentioned like that's that's the place where i think i'm holding my stash because that's the place where I put most of my time into. Um, so can I, you know, slowly relax that? Can I not be a Buddhist scholar? Can I not be a teacher? Can I, you know, can I keep going back into, and what it is is going back into the groundless state over and over again. Because we try to make ground, this is who I am, and we try to get stability, and then we start to stagnate in that stability. Um, we start to get locked in that. Uh, the fancy word I always use is reification. Reification comes from the Latin word re, which means thing. So reification is anytime we thingify something. We take something and we make it a thing. Um, and so I'm just on the lookout. Where where in my life am I trying to thingify something in my life? And And it is through roles. It definitely comes up. It is through relationship. And so I try to just acknowledge that and then be a little gentle with myself around the places where I'm reifying myself. It sounds a lot to me too, like that is difficult in today's capitalist society because everything is made a thing for consumption. Mm -hmm. um, we ourselves become a commodity that we have to market and sell. Um, we are a brand mm -hmm. and I really like that idea of pushing back against maybe how we label ourselves by a profession. You know, from the time we're in high school, we're supposed to know what we want. 
choose a path, go with it. And it, we're sort of seen as a failure if we deviate from that. But it sounds like what you're sort of proposing, and it's kind of revolutionary, right, is being guided by questions rather than answers. Yeah. And in that being guided by questions, really, that comes from learning to listen. It's not like I was seeking out questions. I was just trying to, you know, I had learned, I had already been studying meditation for years before I was in that 11th grade class. And so my teacher started teaching me around 13, 14, basically how to listen, you know? So it's really tuning into, like the questions are all around us, but we normally don't tune into them. And that's that idea of vocation being, um, you know, to be called to hear something, right? And I think you can absolutely have a career that's not your vocation. And in fact, I think most of us do. And I think a career is wonderful, but don't confuse it for your vocation. For example, right now, and, and I've noticed that it changes. I'm, I'm now officially entering midlife, which um, I'm kind of kicking and screaming about. But I've noticed that my vocation is changing a little bit. And But I would say if I could use an overall arching idea on what my vocation is, I would say it's um, my vocation. Yeah, I don't know. I think it would be something like to be brave enough to respond to the callings that I'm hearing in any moment. And, uh, and you know, oftentimes my life is pushed up against the capacity of my bravery of like, oh, there, you know, there's things right now that I feel like I would rather not deal with or face or I don't feel brave enough or that I can't quite, you know, look at it straight in the eye. So at least I try to acknowledge that and just kind of have it over in the corner. But I'm trying to constantly push myself into that territory of acknowledging what's in front of me. Is vocation different than purpose? Good question. I'd have to think about that. What do you guys think in terms of vocation? How I'm the, way, the way you were talking about it, to me, that is the mm -hmm. underlying foundation. And it sounds like the why kind of who am I? Why am I here? And there's a great to... word. In, there's a great word in Tibetan, which we don't really have, but maybe it's related to how I'm using vocation. And the word is calm, K-H-A-M. And calm is that thing that you're born to do, that thing you're passionate about. One of my teachers said, best way to find your calm is if you had an extra three hours all of a sudden, what would you want to do with it? Like what excites you, you know? Like for me, you know, I, you know, it's like, what, what, what is that, that, that just naturally excites you? If you had like a week off, you know, what would excite you? If it wasn't just sitting on the beach, like if you wanted to do something, and uh, so I think that might be a way of thinking about vocation too, or at least at least a pathway into vocation. I love calm. There's that saying, you see it on t-shirts, keep calm. I think they yeah, need right. to change it to keep that, calm. <laughs> what you shared is so much more powerful than totally. keep, keep calm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it really keep that, um, keep that uh, edge of your um, desire, you know, uh, vital. That like that 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 quality of like wow I can't wait to you know go practice trumpet or I can't wait to you know go work on editing or whatever it is that excites you that's the calm. Can we go back to reification? Because I don't know if yeah. I fully yeah. grasp that. How do you de-reify? Like, what is the alternative? Yeah. To the attachment to things and how do you get there? What does that process look like? Particularly as it maybe infuses contemplation, because a lot of what we're talking about is 
a certain level of reflection and awareness, listening. And I don't know if that's tied to it as well, but I'm curious, like listening. Some people think of it as listening to myself. Am I listening to God? What am I listening to? What am I listening for? Let me touch on listening first before we go into reification. So I was, um, I, re- I read a lot of Buddhist and Christian mystics and I was reading, um, oh, I, actually, I was just a, a reading a, a bit on Mother Teresa. Um, and somebody said, uh, when you pray, what do you do? And she says, I listen. And she said, and they said, well, what is God telling you? And she says, God is listening to. I just thought that was so profound. Like prayer is a mutual listening, you know, it's not like in the realm of language. And, um, I am a musician and I'm, I'm, I'm highly sound sensitive. And it, it, I didn't realize what my issue was until a, a few years ago, actually. And I realized I have audio claustrophobia, meaning if I can't hear a, a depth of sound, I start to get very tight. And I noticed when I lived in my very soundproof suburban home in high school growing up, I actually, my last year of high school, I moved outside into a tent. Even in the New England winters, I was out there in my, you know, zero degree sleeping bags because I love that capacity of sound to have distance and to have depth. So I just think there's a profundity that happens when we listen and we don't have to be listening for something, right? It's just an active act of actually opening up the ears. You know, periodically I'll put on an entire album and I'll lay there with the sole purpose of listening to it, like really closely. And it's such a different experience to really open to it. You know, I, I might not have ideas or opinions about it, but I'm really opening to that profundity. So I think it's useful to think of listening as not listening for dot, 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 but just listening as an act of opening. Before you get to reification, you said one thing that I thought was really profound was soul purpose, because we're the soul force ones, right? You meant it as the one, the soul purpose, and yeah. then the soul purpose, right? Just, right. I love language when yeah, totally. things like that come out. Yeah. Profound. Yeah. And, you know, and um, when you think about it too, right? Uh, sometimes I think about that I do psychotherapy, right? Since we're just riffing on sound for, uh, on, on language for a minute, psyche, right? Soul, uh, therapy, right? Therapoiine, which would um, come from the Greek verb to listen to. So psychotherapy is to listen to the soul, not to be in therapy, right? I mean, of course, that's one aspect, but you can think of, uh, uh, I think of myself sometimes as a psychotherapist in that I am constantly trying to listen to my psyche. So reification, uh, let's use this example. I've been using this recently and it's helpful. Um, Or or Actually, so Carlo Rovelli is a gravitational physicist, a, a famous author right now and, and a, a kind of a popular author. He's got a couple of New York Times bestsellers and he's a really beautiful thinker. But he says uh, in the realm of gravitational physics, and, and this is not going to go uh, deep, so don't worry. Um, but he just says, we tend to think of the world in two ways. We tend to think of things and we tend to think of happenings. And the example he uses is a rock is a thing. A kiss is a happening. 
You wouldn't say like, oh, where did I put that kiss? I can't find it anywhere. It was there yesterday, right? He says, what me and my colleagues now understand is that the world is actually made of happenings and not things. That things are actually happenings, just happening in a slower, slower realm. So the de-reification, the process of de-reifying is really the process of de-thingifying, of starting to see phenomena as happenings as opposed to things. So to connect this back to our earlier discussion, if I'm um, a Buddhist scholar and I think that's a thing, I'm going to suffer when that thing ends, when I get dementia or when I lose my um, ability to think clearly or when I realize that this whole time I've been confused about something, right? I'll, I'll, I'll solidify around that. And, and because I feel like it labels who I am, I will get um, reactionary around that, right? If you challenge, for example, if, if, I, if I consider myself a Buddhist scholar and you challenge me about something and you're right, I'm going to be even more reactive because that's who I am. I've made that a thing. Where if I think that's a happening for a little moment in time, I'm interested in Buddhist philosophy and I've spent some time studying that, but that will change. And there's a, it's a more gentle relationship with, with the things in my life, right? With the, with the happenings in my life. So another way of looking at reification is the difference I was, um, between the concept a slave and a person who is enslaved. Feel the difference, right? When, when I say a slave, that sounds like a thing. I'm making that person a thing. Where I say, oh, that's a person who was enslaved. That's a happening. And, um, you know, I live in um, Navajo and Apache and Yavapai country. And, um, and I, you know, with some of the native people around me, you see the language is so different. It's not about reification. It's about um, exploring happenings more. And that would be a whole podcast in and of itself. But, you know, um, but the ways we use language to thingify things versus how can we use language to actually recognize the happening in things. And to tie this into Buddhism, I think you can say that, Bo the, that Buddhism is the gentle, systematic de-reification of all phenomena. Yeah, I was thinking as you mentioned, right, happenings, if we see things, if we see things as happenings, right, it also leads us to impermanence because things are moving through time and with an anthropocentric, right, human-centered view, we look at how things exist in this moment for us. But, you know, your your description of a rock makes me think of mountains or geography where if you take a longer view, it changes a lot, Yeah. right? So all of these things, um, I don't know, for me, it helps me understand sort of impermanence and can perhaps help us as well with gratitude and being happy with what we can experience right now in this moment. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the mountains are just happenings, happening at a slower pace. Um, than we are. So they look like things to us. And we are happenings, right? You gave that example of a kiss. And yeah, right. we are happening. The Buddhist term or the meaning of emptiness, I guess I was sitting with this idea of the one and the letter I 
and how your entire life you've been obsessed with the one exploration of how am I misperceiving the I? How is that connected to happenings and you as a happening? Well, I mean, one way, so I thought I failed, you know, I spent uh, that first year, I, that first night was like, what am I doing? I got to the San Francisco airport and I just had this feeling of like, I never thought in that classic 18 year old way of being unable to think ahead. I never thought like, what am I going to do once I land in the airport in San Francisco? You know, I had everything I owned on my back. I had severed ties with everybody and I, I like freaked out. I sat in the airport, I think, for three or four hours because I had no idea what I was going to do. Like it was suddenly real, you know. And then I eventually got on a bus and that took me to the Golden Gate Bridge. And then I put out my thumb and then that started a year of hitchhiking around. Right. And and about a year later, by by pure coincidence or not coincidence, by by. um I had traveled, I had had all these experiences. I had traveled through five states and just been on the road. I had been migrant farming when my money ran out and I'd just done all kinds of experiences. And I'd come back in through San Francisco. I was just on the road traveling back through San Francisco about a year later. And I suddenly felt, I have no idea who I am. You know, <laughs> it's just feeling like I, I succeeded, but there was nothing there to like support me. It was terrifying. In other words, it was really like I was so depressed. And I remember I was looking, I was about to head to Golden Gate Park to just put out my sleeping bag for the night in some bushes. And I saw, uh, and I remember it was a little bit cold and, and I saw up in a window, a group of people having a dinner party, you know, and I'd go for weeks without talking to anybody and nobody knew who I was and nobody like, I had no, you know, there was just no like being among friends, like friends know you and that's deeply comforting. So I looked up in this window and I thought I would give anything in the world to be up in that room right now. I'd give anything to be in community. And I felt like my my experiment had failed because what I found was I didn't know who I was. So I literally that day I, I walked past a Greyhound station and I said, are there any buses to New York? And they said, yeah, one's leaving in 15 minutes. And I just got on and I went home, you know, that like, like um, prodigal son coming home. And I was just like, I was a mess. I didn't know who I was. I had no no, no place for uh, my identity. So it wasn't until much later when I entered three-year retreat that I had some more insight into this. And it wasn't that I failed. It's just that I was looking for a thing, right? And uh, what I didn't have at 18 that I did have um, when I entered retreat at 40 years old is an ability to endure the discomfort of the unknown. And so really a lot for me of three-year retreat was learning to be okay in groundless states. Um, and, and this is, gets really difficult to talk about, not emotionally or anything, but, but kind of conceptually, is what you discover when you're able to um, relax into groundless states is that they're completely safe. What's a groundless state? Yeah, great example. Um, oftentimes, a groundless state, I mean, great question. Oftentimes, a groundless state uh, will come through tragedy, will come through loss, right? The losing of something important to you, that feeling of like, what am I going to do now? Or, you know, but it can also come through um, 
a feeling of deep beauty, a feeling of deep connection where you're just your your sense of foundation is jostled a little bit. Your sense of, you know, um we were talking about uh, uh, being in, getting your doctorate. And oftentimes at the end of a PhD program, people feel like, what am I doing? Is this what I want to do with my life? Why am I here? Why, you know, that feeling, that's a groundless state. Anytime we've come to this place of like, what, what is going on? What have, what have I done? You know, there's a, millions of ways that groundless states come into our lives. Is that a Could matter even, of questioning purpose? Like, why did I do this? What's the whole point of this? Yeah, I think it goes deeper, though. It's not even okay. an intellectual thing. It's more of a feeling of of literally of, of no ground. Like, whoa, where where can I find some stability? It's a kind of lack of stability. So, I mean, it can be at three in the morning when you get up to pee and you're just feeling like, who am I? Or what, is, what are we doing on this planet? Or, you know, and, and then you go back to bed and you wake up and you forget about those questions. But so a groundless state could be anything from a little taste of like, oh my God, where's my wallet? Right. That feeling. Um, recently I was teaching in New York city and I was uh, on in a cab to come back to the airport, to fly back to Arizona the cab drove away. I watched the cab drive away. And then I reached for my phone, which had my airline ticket, you know, on it. And I realized my phone was in the cab. And it was like, oh, that's a groundless state, right? That's just like, a, oh, my God. And there was a moment of panic. Um, and about not a moment, there's about 30 minutes of like, holy. Uh, and then, and then there was a relaxation into like, I'm in the unknown. I don't know how this is going to unfold. And, and so, so I'm still not very good at that, but I, um, between the ages of 18 and 40, I learned how to endure that in a much different way. So coming back to our unexpected theme of listening, when I went into a three-year retreat, I was, I was basically touching on those same ideas that I hit when I was 18 of feeling like, who am I, right? Because I did the same exact thing. I sold everything I owned. What I didn't sell, I had a big bonfire and I, and I burned everything and I got rid of all my money and I had nothing when I went into uh, my traditional retreat. And, and I felt those groundless states, but what I was able to do is relax into them and just listen. And what I what happened for me is that listening created um, in that listening, I was able to find a safety that's not based on an articulation of groundedness. Let me unpack that real quickly. What would be an articulation of groundedness? Uh, an articulation of groundedness would be I get um, one way we really ground ourselves in this world is through money. Um, if you know you want respect from your peers, make a lot of money. Immediately, you have a sense of, oh, I am this person because I have money. And one of the unexpected things that happened for me in a retreat was I realized how much I got a sense of identity through buying things. I didn't know that really going into retreat, but I was jonesing heavily to buy something. And I mean, even like a even like a smoothie at a restaurant or like a, you know, a, a pack of Doritos or something like just the, the small act and think about it, break it down in your mind for a minute. When you put money on a counter and get something in exchange, it's a very small affirmation that you exist. 
that you are a person, you know, and, and, and next time you buy something big, watch that feeling of like, yes, this feels good. Cause I'm, I'm, a, you know, I even, you know, I'm building a lot right now. And when I get a, a load full of lumber, there's this feeling I watch in my mind and like, yeah, I got lumber. <laughs> it's so absurd, but it's this feeling of like, I am somebody, you know, I've got a whole truck full of two by fours. I never would have known that was a thing until I went in a three-year retreat and I could never purchase anything. And, and, and through the wisdom of dreams, I started having all these dreams that I was in a store and they're like, here's 20 bucks, go buy anything you want. And that, that psychic energy that was um, agitating me was releasing through dreams. And I realized, oh, I'm addicted to buying things. That's part of what it is to be in a consumer culture is that there's a deep addiction, whether we're realizing it or not, to buying things. So when I suddenly was out of that realm and I couldn't buy anything and I had no reflection of who I was through being able to buy lumber or whatever it was, there was, an, there was a groundless state. There was an agitation. When I could, when I, and I was forced to relax into that agitation, what I found on the other side of the agitation was something beautiful. And again, it's hard to talk about this, but, but oftentimes that agitation, we try to cover it up because nobody wants to be agitated. So if I feel that agitation in my normal life come up, I'll overeat or I'll uh, binge watch something or I'll do anything to numb that whole system, right? But when you put yourself into a retreat or into an experience like that, where you don't have as many avenues for numbing the system, you have to face the, that, that groundless state. You have to face that terror of not knowing. And in facing that terror, um, I believe we're fed deeply with vitality. You just gotta be who you are. Can't be walking around here. More like superstar. Microphones, verbalize my combustion to your domes. When I was a teen, I would fiend for bass drones, searching for a hype tune all day long. Once I was in a cipher, I caught a contact cat flipping on the microphone, wild and combat mode. Episode maybe in low like flashbacks of an epic battle in Zulu dawn, lightning snaps, cracks, verbal blast. He was back quick in the flash. I teleport instantaneous new positions. My mic Jones keep me feeding my people. Listen, my mission hell exhibition with verbal fiction. I move on them, so close I see your sweat missing. Little bubbles on his face, his nerves twitching. If you can't stand the heat, get out the kitchen. Let's fix it, the gas is spell, but yo, chill. Cause just then, everything seemed to end. Everything in my sight just turned to night. Opened up my eyes, it was broad daylight. A rhythm junkie on the tip, I need another fix. It's Mike Jones, I need microphones. Verbalize my combustion to your domes. When I was a teen, I would fiend for bass drones. Searching for a height. Don't all night long, my mic Jones, huh? You wouldn't understand the dilemma of my inner from a distant land. From the river of the Nile to Sahara sand. Go to soul of a poet, spiritual black man. I get woke from my days in the middle of a scene. Golden microphones and ill fiends. Someone's collaborating, trying to make teams. It seems I fall into another rhyme scheme. Keen eyes, 
We're set on the prize. Iron up the competition, steady plotting the mass. Do it rise to the top, do it fall and flop. Do it get back, stabbed and bagged and some more chop. Then suddenly, huh, a strange man appeared. Steady floating in the air, said we gathered in here. With the world's greatest rockers, all the border shockers. Ladies and gentlemen, he's the illest hip hopper, huh? Already knew that. Question was, who that? Before I could react, we was in combat. We was crabs in the bow and I sold a paddle. But a silly go to mic, spilling our bone mouth. Started to step back, so that we was in the bubble. It seemed like trouble, and then I started seeing double. For my vision faded, I saw faces mad elated. To see these MCs struggle, so frustrated. Mike Jones, I need microphones. Verbalize my combustion to your dome. When I was a teen, I would fiend for bass stones. Searching for a hype tone all night long. I'm Mike Jones, you wouldn't understand the dilemma of my inner from a distant land. From the river of the Nile to Sahara sand. Go to soul of a power spirit, Joe Black Man. I'm Mike Jones. Mike Jones. Mike Jones. So there's the Heart Sutra, which, as I understand, suggests a form of emptiness. And so I relate that to the zero. And then I think of soul force ones and this idea of oneness and that there's one God or this energy that connects all these happenings and all of life. And then it's interesting because in math or in technology, it's zeros and ones. Mm-hmm. Is, is, is one more right than the other? Or maybe you can help explain the Heart Sutra and that connection to oneness. Yeah, the Heart Sutra is a, a really profound um, text that takes many, many. There's there's texts that take years to work with, and then there's texts that are a little more simple. But Heart Sutra is one of those deep ones, and it, you know it is about emptiness. Emptiness uh, can be easily misunderstood, and and one simple way of thinking about emptiness is just the the idea that um, the world is happenings and not things. And happenings, what Carlo Rovelli points out, which I think is really useful for our discussion, and happenings always exist between two mind streams. And he says like a kiss that exists between two people, right? A happening always exists between two mind streams. Let me break this down for a minute and let me use this example. Um, I wasn't even planning on this. This is not a prop, but I happen to have a bowl behind me. So for us, we would say, what is this? It's a bowl. Um, to a termite, what would it be? It would be food, right? It would be sustenance. So then we can say, um, okay, who's correct? And that's a, that gets to be a little bit of a problem because we can't really say who's, because uh, if I say I'm correct, then a termite should be able to use it as a bowl and not eat it. And if I say the termite's correct, then I should be able to eat it. This is just a little Buddhist logic here. So we can't say that both are correct, right? There's a problem with that because it's not, it's not food, right? It's not, that's not correct for me. So we have to say it depends on the mind stream perceiving it as to what this is, right? Even the fact that it's just a chunk of wood, we can say, well, yeah, but there's another mind stream that, that might even be living inside of the, you know, atoms of that wood. Like to them, it's a whole universe or, you know, so they, so emptiness is, and, and, I, and I don't mean to use the um, absurd analogy that it's empty, right? It's, it doesn't mean that it's empty of having something. It just means that it's empty of existing as its own thing from its own side. 
it exists as a happening depending on the mind stream perceiving it. And that's what the, the Heart Sutra is tr trying to get at. And, and it does it through kind of psychedelic, difficult language. But really the, the, the essence that it's trying to get at is, this is a bowl for me. That's not false. That's not an illusion. And, and oftentimes people new to Buddhism think it's an illusion. It's not an illusion at all. I mean, if you were here, I could, you know, knock you on the head with it and you'd be like, ouch, why did you hit me with that bowl? It's like, because it is a bowl, right? It really exists as a wooden bowl. So that's not an illusion. But what is an illusion is the idea that this exists as a bowl from its own side, independently of my mind stream perceiving it. Now, certainly we can say it exists from its own side as something, as atoms, as a happening moving through time for a moment that appears solid. But, but in reality, it's just a moving phenomenon that for a moment I'm labeling a bowl. And, and probably before my life is over, or maybe in a couple lives from now, or at least definitely within 10 lives from now, uh, within probably 500 years from now, this will no longer be a bowl. I mean, it could end as a bowl tonight. I could put it in my wood-burning stove and then it would be gas, right? And where did the bowl go? Where did the happening go? So emptiness and what the Heart Sutra is po um, pointing to is this idea of um, that, that things don't exist in and of themselves. And you get in Buddhism this idea of self-nature. So coming back to oneness, the oneness is that we all share the same lack of self-existence. And, and, and here's where it gets really tricky, and, and, it, and it's why it's a bigger discussion than a simple like definition, is the lack of self-existence is not a quality. It's an absence of a quality. So what we all share, what makes us all one is the absence of a quality as opposed to a quality. And maybe that's a little too intellectual or maybe that's a little too abstract, but, but, in, but the feeling, try to get the feeling, it's an absence. Now an absence of something is a groundless state. That's uncomfortable. Like when you start to touch onto what emptiness really is, if you're doing it well, you'll be a little bit uncomfortable. You'd be like, whoa, what, we're talking about an absence? or it, it, it gets a little bit uncomfortable. And that's what we're talking about with a groundless state. What people want to do is reify emptiness and say, oh, I am empty. But when I say I am, that, in, that connotates a, a quality where emptiness is a lack of a quality. Let me give you an absurd example. If I were to describe to you the room I'm in right now, I could tell you the walls are earth toned. There's some nice cabinets, some nice plants. And there's this quality of it having a lack of a giant squid. Right? I wouldn't say that because a lack of a giant squid in this room is not a quality of the room. You see what I mean? It's not, it doesn't give you a feeling. Oh yeah, I get a real feel for that room right now. That There's no giant squid there. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think I would like to you know, rent that out as an Airbnb. If it has no giant squid, that seems a quality we all look for when, you know, that's not a quality. It's an absence of something. And absences are really hard for us to wrap our mind around. But that's what we're talking about with this elusive concept of emptiness as the absence of something that we thought was there that turns out it's not there.
And what I thought was there was a solid Will Duncan. I thought there was a solid entity here that has a certain consistency through time and has a certain permanence and, and a quality to it. And, and, and as you delve into emptiness, what you're discovering is that you're happening and not a thing. I don't know if that just uh, opened Pandora's box or if that was helpful at all. I think, I think we're all processing. Um, I know, I know it's a lot. I love it though. I think I was thinking when you picked up the bowl of like semiotics and like a sign and a symbol and a signifier and how we make meaning of things. And like you say, it depends on um, who or what is interacting with that happening. Um, yeah, let me say something right there. Yeah. So another mistake that often happens is we are not, um, you got to be careful. It's You're talking about a signifier and making meaning. Meaning making and signifying is not a negative thing from a Buddhist perspective, right? Absolutely. This is a bull. The problem is when we reify the bull. I can say this is a bull. I'll pay you for this thing. I can even say it's a thing. Sure. Let's use conventional language. But when I reify that, when I concretize that, when I solidify, that or when I freeze that in space and time and think that will always be my bowl, that's where suffering comes in. And that's what the Buddha discovered. Oh, suffering is based on a solidifying of labeling. So the labeling process itself, no problem. That's a good person. That's a bad person. That's my bowl. That's your bowl. There's no problem with that. It's when we solidify those things and say, oh, it will always be my bowl or whatever, you know. And how much of that solidification comes from, could it be like the nature of language? Because it seems so often that what we're constantly doing is sort of updating or language is shifting to more accurately describe um, what's in this world. But at the same time, it locks it in. Yeah, I think it is the nature of language. I think it's the nature of minds too, um, just to immediately grab onto something. And again, I, let's be careful. I don't think it's a negative thing at all. It's the, it's the reification, but the labeling, we really see this in um, the studies that were, or have been done when people have their corpus callosum severed, which is the, the nerve fibers that connect the two hemispheres of the brain. So it's such a it's such a weird area of um, neurology, but you can show somebody an image to one um, eye, which will register only in half the brain, and then you can ask them a question in the other half of the brain, and those two brain halves can't um, communicate. So what they've discovered, for example, they showed a man that had his corpus callosum severed. They showed him in one half of his brain pictures of pornography. Then they asked the other half of his brain, why are you blushing? The truth is he had no idea why he's blushing because that half of his brain didn't know that he had seen pornography. But instantaneously he made meaning, he made meaning out of it and said, because you just said that funny joke. He believes that, but there was no joke that was said. In other words, we very quickly grab onto meaning making. When something uh, is confusing to us or is when something comes up and we don't have meaning for it, very quickly grab onto meaning-making mechanisms. 
Um, another example is they'll show half the hemisphere uh, image that says walk. And then they'll ask the person, why are you walking? And they, they'll just say, I just feel like I need to stretch out a little bit. So the mind, when it can't communicate, it'll very quickly um, make up for any incongruencies because incongruencies is another type of groundless state. If you're like, I have no idea why I'm walking, that would be so uncomfortable to the mind and to the psyche that the psyche can't handle that. It's so taxing on the mind that it can't handle that ambiguity for very long at all. You're a farmer, and I was thinking about the absence of pesticides because you're an organic farmer, as I understand. Connect what you were talking about in terms of absence and the idea of being an organic farmer and that being the absence of pesticides. <laughs> I don't know if I can make that connection. Um, I think it would be a different quality, some kind of slightly different thing, but you know, I don't use pesticides. Well, one, just cause I don't want to poison the earth and poison my body and poison my home and poison the life around me. So it's not so much, um, yeah, I don't know if it would relate so much to Buddhist emptiness. It's not so much an absence of pesticides, but rather um, using more natural means to to serve the earth, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, it's interesting. Is, is that a practice? I was curious, when you're farming, when you're toiling the land, when you're connected to it, is that a form of practice? How does your Buddhism, your mm. philosophy, your purpose, how is that connected to even the practice of farming? Yeah, so, and this all kind of happened by accident. Um, We were looking for a piece of land that had a business already attached onto it that we could support a small group, like four or five people that that wanted to be more serious um, in their meditative life and live a kind of more sane life. So really, I was just, I almost bought a broom factory um, that where they made natural fiber brooms by hand and they had beautiful, like 20 acres. And so I almost became, you know, if that had happened, we would be talking about brooms, but, um, in the last moment I, uh, froze on that. I got nervous about that for some water rights reasons. And then I ended up buying a lavender farm, but I have always gardened and I've always loved farming. And it's, and for me, it's in some ways, it's perfect for the lifestyle, right? So the way we organize our lives is we sit two or three times a day. We sit uh, every morning and every evening, and then sometimes in the afternoon. We do certain things to limit, um, not limit, how to say it. We, we have certain um, ways we try to live where, for example, we do no videos on the farm. Um, Not that we don't love videos, but we're like, what would it be like to live in a way where we weren't like, you know, binge watching YouTube or, you know, just didn't watch videos. And we do like movie nights twice a month to like, so we can still do that. And and then we do no Wi-Fi and no um, computers after 8 p.m. We do silence from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. So just some little things like this, just to try to live a more sane life. So it's really by chance that I'm a farmer. But um, what I've found is it's really a beautiful mix. So my the way I make a living is mostly through lecturing. Uh, farming, uh, small-scale farming is a losing battle. So basically farming takes about 80% of my time and provides about 10% of the income. 
and lecturing uh, provides the other 80%. So, but what I found is that I'll sit on the computer or I'll be in meditation or I'll be working um, with concepts and ideas. And then periodically throughout the day, I'm going and being physical with my body and the earth and, you know, moving things around. And that physicality uh, uh, I've come to realize is absolutely vital to a contemplative life. Well, yeah, my follow-up question is why do it then? You said it takes up 80% of your time, brings in 10% the income. Most people yeah. would just scratch that then. I'm going to focus more on lecturing because that's bringing in the income. You're able to share ideas. You obviously have a great mind. So why not do more of that and less of the farming? Why the yeah. farming? Uh, it's funny because I was just talking about this yesterday. I have a neighbor who's a dairy farmer and she trades me um, raw milk for uh, philosophy. So we, uh, and so she comes with philosophical questions and then we sit on the porch and we, we do philosophy for an hour and then I get a gallon of uh, delicious milk. I love that. <laughs> but we were talking yesterday about like, about the finances of farming. And, you know, she's, she said that all, all year long, her work with the dairy cows provide, only provides enough to feed them, to feed the cows, not even to feed them, the family. So basically it's not even a break even thing. And I was like, it's absurd. Like, why do we do these things? You know, and, and you hear it all the time. It's really lifestyle, right? It's, it's such a wholesome, uh, not wholesome. It's such a beautiful way of being in existence. Like I wake up and I have like 20 physical things I have to do that day. It's such a relief somehow, the physicality of it. That said, I didn't get into this thinking that, that that was the equation. I I spent two years pretty depressed when I was trying to work out the finances. And then I realized, oh, I have to come to terms with this and figure out if my vocation was to make money, I would be a pretty depressed dude right now. Um, but I've never been that concerned about money. I want money only that it'll support my deeper vocation, which is exploring um, ideas, um, community, creating uh, vibrant conversations. That's really my vocation. And it turns out farming is really useful for that vocation. Um, I get people come out to the farm all the time. We'll spend all day weeding and, and philosophizing and, and discussing things. And so again, it's, it's accidental. It's not um, a conscious like movement, like, okay, I'm going to be a farmer now because that will help me, whatever. It's really this kind of accidental thing. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if we could take it back to maybe where the conversation started with the focus on listening and your love of music. I'm also, I can't get the image of your, your epic record collection out of my head mm. as a vinyl lover. Um, you also founded a hip hop inspired Dharma infused percussion marching band, correct? Yeah, that's actually, it's such a funny story. I was, um, I was staying with, I was staying with some couple in, uh, I, I can't even remember the circumstances, but I was crashing at some couple's house who I didn't know. And I, my girlfriend knew them and we were different types of people. And he was like this really kind of intense biker dude. And then he said something interesting to me. He said, if you're not increasing the vibration on the planet, then you shouldn't even be on the planet. And I thought, oh, that was really interesting. And, and some, you know, this whole bizarre, um, overnight stay at this house. That was the thing that stayed with me. And I was like, I want to increase the vibration on the planet. And I thought, man, there is nothing that increases an energy in a space like a marching band. 
I mean, you know, when I see a marching band come by, I'm like, whew, it's like the upliftment of prana is so profound. And I've also been so um, tied into language. I, I went to school for poetics uh, uh, when I first went back to college and, um, and the power of language, the power of poetics, the power of beat, the power of rhythm. And, and it just really, I was like, let's combine them, you know? So what we did was uh, I built a megaphone helmet um, that I could also plug a guitar into. And then we had, a, we just had a based, I've always loved hip hop. I grew up in that culture. Um, so we just were using a lot of these really up awesome hip hop beats and we are learning them. And then we would infuse it with some of these um, beautiful Dharma poems, uh, you know, written in, you know, eighth century, ninth century, and we were reworking them. So, and um, so that was the idea for that. It's just a way to kind of create an, uh, an, uh, an upliftment of prana in a group of people. We had a short-lived, um, you know, we got hired to do <laughs> the Tucson Christmas Parade. And uh, there were some letters to the editor after we showed up. And <laughs> but we would do things like, um, you know, some birthday parties. And because uh, we hired ourselves out for unusual events. And we also played the Tucson Roller Derby periodically and, you know, things like that. So we were an, an unusual, uh, nobody could quite pinpoint us. Like, what are we, you know? But it was great. And I'm actually, it's funny you bring that up because I'm thinking about um, actually starting uh, version two of that up here and where I live now in Arizona and getting that going again. Well, I love it because it's otherwise what most people would think is disparate ideas like Dharma, hip hop doesn't go with that. Right. Yeah. Um, but being able to bring all of that together, because as we often say, it's all connected and intentionally connecting those two together is beautiful. Yeah. And I knew I was about to do three years of silence. So when I did my uh, three year retreat, I took a three year vow of silence. And so a part of me also, this kind of rebel part of me, wanted to make as much noise as possible before I went into that. Just like cause as much of a ruckus as I could. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. Your retreat, you did it for three years, three months and three days. Was that intentional? The three? Yeah, I mean, it so, sounds good. Yeah, no. And it wasn't it wasn't like my thing. It was I was just locking into an age old tradition. So right now in the country, there's probably I would say about 100 people doing that exact same retreat. Uh, and this was, you know, a 500 year old tradition on, on a specific Tibetan Buddhist uh, type of practice. Why three, three, three? Um, they say it takes about that long for the prana, the um, nadis in our body to tr to change, and and that gets into a little bit of a, a, a complex discussion. But in Eastern tradition, we have this idea of prana, just like chi. You and, and and the way for people that aren't familiar with prana, think about it is this is what acupuncture deals with. Acupuncture is just the putting in needles to change the movement of of energy in the body. So prana runs through these things called nadis, which are little energetic channels. And what you're trying to do in a three-year retreat is you're trying to have certain realizations about emptiness and about compassion. They say it takes about three years, three months, and three days for that, for you basically for you to rebuild your uh, inner architecture to be able to hold those ideas. That's the concept behind 333. I don't know if it's true, but that that's the reason. And so I was just locking into a very old tradition and doing a very traditional practice. And I will say it was the definitely the most 
three most difficult years of my life, but it was also the most beautiful years of my life. It was, and the thing is, it was, it's kind of getting back to what we were talking about. It was so substantive. There was so much substance to, um, that when I got out, I felt like as I wandered around the country, um, the first year I got out, I felt like I was in Disneyland with no exit. Everything felt like it had a facade where when I was in that kind of depth of silence and depth of, of, of meditativeness, everything had so much substance. Uh, and, and it's hard to explain, but there was just this feeling of like, oh, wow, I, I was losing that profound substantiveness of, um, of being in that profound listening quality. Was there more difficulty in actually coming back to reality, right? Because the closest I've done is probably just, and not even a silence retreat, going on a weekend retreat, and you even in that yeah. come back to reality. I imagine that three years of silence is just magnified on a whole nother scale. Is that the difficulty, like coming back to this materialistic world where there is yeah. so much noise and it's... Yeah, that was definitely... That was really difficult. The first year was also really difficult because it's you're, there's no place to hide. Kind of what I was talking about and wanting to just buy something, you know, and um, all of your demons start to come up and there's no no way to push them aside. And, you know, I felt like when I entered retreat, I felt like I didn't have much baggage, really. I mean, I really tried to clean my life up um, and, and really, you know, come to terms. But all of these little things started popping up. The mean things I said to somebody in fifth grade, like suddenly popped up. Like when the mind stills, everything pops up. And um, when you think about like, so what I realized in retreat is every image you've ever put in your mind is still in there and it's informing who you are. And they say the average teen has seen 20,000 simulated murders by the time they're 17. That's all in your psychic system, you know? And I didn't realize that until I got into retreat and I was like, wow. So now I'm super careful with what I put into my mind. Cause I know even if I forget about it, it's in for, it's there because what I saw is my mind stilled is like, every image popped up every you know little thing just kept popping up i was like my god i've i haven't remembered that since i was six years old you know so that was what was difficult it was like a really nasty um you know when you get food poisoning and you're just purging i felt like the first year was just a lot of purging um and, and it, was, it was like psychological and emotional and just painful once you purge, then you start to, you know, talking about oftentimes you hear people say, well, then you come back to reality. But really, it's the opposite way is in retreat, you start to see reality. And then what happens when you come back out of retreat is you're coming back into the facade of a, a, a dull, numbed mindset. And what you do is what you're feeling, the grief that I felt coming out of retreat was the grief of losing an intimacy. So, you know, when you're like, when you're, you're, you're just that your girlfriend is not looking at you in the way she used to, and you feel like that intimacy is fading, that painful experience that we've all gone through of feeling an intimacy fade. For me, that was the pain of coming out of retreat, coming out of reality and coming back into this kind of haze. And yeah, super painful. It was really unpleasant. It was also ecstatic because I missed human beings so much. 
Um, like somebody, you know, and now I'm not in that state now. I'm just back to my old numb, dull state, you know. But um, like if I saw somebody I don't like at the grocery store, I would avoid them right now. But right after retreat, I would like if you said, here's this person you really don't like. Do you want to um, go on a car trip with them? I'd be like, yes, just this feeling of deep love for human beings, regardless of who they were, regardless of their political views. It was like I just wanted to be close to them. It was such a beautiful feeling. And it was a great um, it's something that still informs me a lot is the memory of that of how much I actually love human beings. And it's easy to forget because human beings are annoying. The paradox. <laughs> <laughs> Another paradox. But life is a paradox. This has been fantastic. I feel like I could talk to you all day, but we want to be respectful of your time. Is there anywhere if people want to find out more about you or to connect with you, where can we direct them to? Yeah, people can find me. I um, I finally started. I'm on social media, so you can find me on Instagram, Will Duncan Classes. You can find my website at willduncan.org, and then you can find me on YouTube at Will Duncan. I started a little YouTube channel to kind of show life on the farm and to uh, kind of mix up a uh, life of lavender farming with some Eastern and Western of the wisdom traditions there and how how that pops up for me on the farm, like how some of the some of the wisdom that I've learned from my teachers is actually useful for the um, sometimes disheartening world of small time farming. Do you have any insights to share? I feel like as someone who's recently started up this podcast mm. and I haven't really been big on the socials, but I think as I was sharing with you, we had these great conversations in our first season, but there's so much content out there. It's difficult to push through. And mm. I felt myself sitting with this paradox of, I don't desire to be a celebrity but I also want to have content that is right. Cause we're spending the time producing it. So we would yeah. hope that people will listen to it. And then I look at the, the number of likes and it's not as high as I would want it. And yeah. so my immediate reaction is to self-loathe and, and what's wrong with the world. This is great content. So I'm mad at them or I'm mad at me and just sitting with, I, I, I try to go back to the why. And, and the purpose of this all and that it doesn't matter kind of like art, right? And maybe it's like your hip hop inspired marching band. Some of the people in the world may not get it, but it's more of the process of creating this. That this is an art form that we're producing. It's the time together with you in conversation that we're establishing a relationship. I'm learning, I'm listening, that that's the purpose of it. And anything else is just kind of icing on the cake. I don't know, just th that's some of the thoughts that are going on in my head. I was just curious if you had any insights yeah, to share. So That'll be true. my last question because I know we're yeah. running Yeah, it's so time. true. Uh, you know, bringing up the marching band. So here's an example. So we were not a successful marching band. We are a niche, you know, and and we were playing at one of these roller derbies and uh, some of the girls got into a fight and there was a full-on brawl in the middle of a match. And the announcer came on after it was all over, you know, the announcer came on and he said, um, I have no idea what just happened there. Like, and, and he's like, that was so confusing. It was almost as confusing as the halftime show. <laughs> and I thought it was such a great moment because it was like, yeah, we are not for everybody. Right. But then after that show, 
you know, and I, and I felt like depressed, like, oh, he doesn't get what we're doing. Like it didn't come across, you know? And after that show, this 15 year old girl came up to me and she said, you know, something like you guys just changed my life. Like I came here for the roller derby and you just opened up something in me that had been closed for a long time. It's like, oh, yeah. And I, and I realized in terms of con like we are a saturated culture in terms of content. But each of us has a unique way of telling the story. You know, and, and I realized I am not a, a success in, in, the, in the way that you might think about a success of a, like a Buddhist teacher, as a success of social media. But I have a way of telling the story that resonates with some people. And, uh, and that's, that's what I have to lock into is and, and in their resonation, in their um, resonating with the way I'm telling it. I get fed by that. And, you know, I was just teaching some kids um, a college class the other day. I learned so much and it's so cliche to say, but it's really true. I I learned so much from our discussion. My, uh, my partner, I got home and she said, how was it? I said, I learned so much. She's like, you were teaching. I was like, I know, but I got more out of it. And so I think as long as there's that reciprocal, what would be the word reciprocity? I'm messing that up. But as long as there's that movement back and forth of energy, I think it's beautiful, you know, and, and, and we're such a cult of like, you know, go big or go home. I think screw that, stay small and like just be something beautiful in the world. It's that idea of think globally and act locally, like and act locally now means you have we have a small niche of people that resonate with the way we tell the story. So I think there's a beauty in telling the story. There's a beauty in listening to the story. And I think it's less about numbers and i know that's cliche but i really i really feel that yeah it's reciprocity it's the relationship the yeah, give and take even in service right there's yeah. this idea that i'm serving someone else they're poor and i'm giving everything to them right but th there is this great situation where my daughter we just went made some sandwiches and we're serving coffee to uh homeless individuals in our town and so my daughter uh, gave one of the bagged lunches to this woman. And then she provided my daughter with a rock. It was like a polished rock. And that made my yeah. daughter's day. Right. Totally. So it was this idea yeah. that she had something quite literally to give to her. And even if she didn't, the humility that we have to receive at the very least. Right. Yeah. But that exchange, how we all can give and take is better to give than receive. Right. Another yeah. paradox. Yeah. Um, can I ask one last question? Yeah, sure. That Kate put in the chat. So, I, I would like to, um, I'm hoping you can make the connection between the realization of uh, the self or phenomena as happenings or empty mm. and how that leads to compassion or what the connection between insight into the nature of reality and compassion is. Um, leave it to you, Kate, to ask like one of the most difficult questions. So the the question you're asking is the question that um, Nagarjuna puts forth, which is, and he states, um, he says it this way, um, emptiness is the womb of compassion. Compassion is born out of emptiness. And I think that's what you're asking. Why is emptiness the womb of compassion? Um, and there is there is absolutely zero way I could answer that in under an hour. 
<laughs> there really is. But but what I, the only thing I can offer is let's make the question a little more potent, right? Uh, let's just let's. Uh, so I, I'll end with that. Is is why would and and just all I'm going to do is restate the question. And and we see this, and and all the Buddhist masters throughout time have come to the same conclusion that. Once we touch on seeing phenomena as happenings as opposed to things, when we just taste that, our capacity for compassion expands. That's bizarre. I mean, that's strange. That's a strange marriage, and that marriage is so um, uh, so articulated and so poignant in Buddhist uh, Buddhist worldview of, of those two that you can't have true compassion without emptiness. Another way of asking the question is, what would compassion look like if we thingified everybody? Right, uh, and that's a, sometimes I like to reverse engineer these difficult questions. Is how if I saw people as things. What would that mean to be compassionate with things, you know? Um, but I'm really sorry that I can't give you a more uh, uh, fervent and useful answer. It's a huge question. I just did a three-part series on that, and we spent weeks on it. Um, but it's a great question. I think if we is, if we can keep that question alive and let it eat away at us, it, it can go to beautiful places. Thank you so much again. This has been great. Yeah, wonderful. Wonderful talking to you both. I could I could talk all day. So uh, so thanks for having me. It's been really nice. appreciated is that this conversation that was really philosophical was really connected to my work in career education because he talked about the vocation and how that translates literally to calling and then there was a lot of conversation about listening so yeah just the 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 act of of listening and being detached from your career or titles and that could mean being a father, being a husband, being a, in the case of Will, a Buddhist scholar, and detaching us from those roles, which reminds me a lot of what Parker Palmer talks about in terms of the soul and the role, but who we are as individuals and the significance of questions and how those existential questions, those questions about what we do with our life that through that introspection and contemplation, we arrive at meaning and purpose. Yeah, what did you think, Al? It resonates how there's more there beyond our roles. And I think it kind of 
clashes a bit with much of the things that we're told or the way that we perceive ourselves and others in terms of um, profession or role where we dedicate a lot of time to developing the skills, to following a path. But then at the same time, right, I don't know that we necessarily need to, it can also limit, right? Well, I do this, so I can't do something else or... Uh, well, and Will talks about that because he says the difference between a vocation and a career. And he talks about his vocation being, for him, being brave and responding to the callings that I'm hearing in any moment. So it's very broad, right? That could be him on the lavender farm. That could be him doing a lecture as a Buddhist scholar, right? Those titles, they connect to that deeper broader purpose and meaning so I, I liked how kind of abstract that was that it had to do about courage and so whenever he approaches his life and his work it's a matter of being brave in that particular moment and so that could lead to doing whatever it is that you do so yeah actually i'll probably have to pause and figure out well what is my vocation right because i'm a, a podcaster i'm a higher ed administrator, but then perhaps there is a common denominator like will that's rooted in courage or bravery or, or something else that underlies that work. And that becomes the vocation. So if I lose my job tomorrow, that's not going to necessarily impact me because I can find other work perhaps that allows me to fulfill this vocational calling. Yeah, as you say that, it makes me think of how much we may limit ourselves based on fear. I think that's part of what, when he talks about getting rid of his record collection, getting rid of his possessions and moving, there's a lot of fear there. And I think part of it is the unknown, but part of it is also living in a capitalist system where housing is not guaranteed, where food is not guaranteed, where healthcare is not guaranteed. Healthcare is hard to get. Um, that there's that fear that keeps you kind of boxed in, where it's interesting to see sort of the parallel as well between Will and Parker Palmer in that detachment from possessions, but also detachment from those labels to a more foundational essence, I would say. And as you mentioned, pausing and finding your vocation, I think part of it also that Will mentions is, is change, right? So listening, as you, as you said before, John, being open and assessing and evaluating where you are. And that can change. At this moment, in this time with the world that we're in, where I'm at in this moment, I feel called to do this. And not getting stuck in that, but also sort of remaining open and listening and being willing to shift, I think, accordingly. Yeah, and I was trying to figure out, because he gave up his vinyl collection, and our Soul Force One's logo has a, a vinyl record as a part of it, you know? I was just trying to make some connections there. Maybe you can. I couldn't quite come up with anything. But the other thing that he said was related to the role as a thing as opposed to a happening and things aren't 
fixed, they change, just like relationships. And oftentimes it's it's perception. So we talked about being a slave versus being enslaved. And you hear you hear survivors being referred to, you know, sexual survivors as survivors as opposed to victims, because it's a perception of am I going to let what happened to me define me, or is it going to be the aftermath of how I overcame? And and you you all absolutely are. Every victim of sexual assault is a victim, right? But it's an emphasis on what am I going to focus? How am I going to understand my being? my purpose beyond that. Like I am not going to let this define me. Perhaps any differently than I might allow my career to define me. And how even will, and I think us all get caught up in that ego, right? In wanting and seeking fulfillment. And he experiencing that and sharing about that as it relates to being a Buddhist scholar. And when you're around other people, and they're complimenting you, that feels great, right? But to recognize, well, that's my ego that is receiving this compliment and to detach just the same way we might detach ourselves from those possessions, detach ourselves from that ego, which is a lot easier said than done. Definitely. And I loved that idea of happenings. It's a concept that sort of helps me shift the way that I perceive things. And I think that's very integral to a lot of the work that we do ourselves and in education is thinking about there needs to be a shift in the way that we see the world, right? And so that concept of happenings puts emphasis on change, how everything is in flux, how everything is temporary. So it kind of through language gets at the basis of, or at least closer to reality something I've been thinking a lot about lately is language. And I'm fascinated with the way that language, positing something as a happening rather than a thing, changes the way that we see it and interact with it. As far as vinyl and records, I mean, we could get into that. I would, it's tough because you want those things. And now we're in an era of the cloud where nothing really exists. But the record, the dope thing about the record is it revolves, right? Mm. Revolutions per minute. And well, and he talks about the unfolding. It's interesting that you mentioned how it revolves because happenings, our careers, we, he talks about unfolding, how happenings unfold. And there was actually something, this gets more to the perception as opposed to maybe the unfolding. There was something really profound that you said, which was tied to the rock. Like if I look at a mountain, but I'm really up close, it's just a rock. But once I take a step back and can appreciate the magnitude of this, I then can now appreciate this rock, perhaps a collection of rocks that now comprise this mountain. So the significance of, of again, perception. The significance of perception, and as you mentioned that, it's interesting how it's nature. We're often, I feel, again, this is all just stuff that has been in my mind lately, that we are often disconnected from, from our essence. We're caught up in the world of things, constructs. It could be physical things, but also deeper than that, right? 
labels that define us beyond in in kind of cloud reality in mountains are places where i have felt small and kind of humbled similar to i think a lot of people feel that with the ocean and forests and so there's something there about how nature helps us return to ourselves but also in doing that we get reconnected with some of that oneness the soul force oneness the interdependence and interconnectedness of everything you know what's interesting in that oneness also in that connection is the paradox then of the groundless state when you've lost that when you no longer feel as if you are on firm ground and you've lost that connection to something that was so significant and so i think of during the pandemic right that could be the loss of a loved one that could be a divorce and the ending of a relationship because you identified yourself as the husband or the wife of this other individual and now that is no more and you have this this groundless state so I loved how he kind of broke that down. And again, it's a perception of things are changing, things are revolving and evolving, change is constant. And this relationship, this with 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 work, with people, it is changing. And there's a certain depth here. And perhaps there's still an opportunity for me to find myself within this newness of whatever it is. Will, that reminds me of the story that Will told about being in San Francisco, being outdoors and cold near Golden Gate Park and walking by and looking through a window and seeing a dinner party mm. and saying, I looked up in this window and I thought I would give anything in the world to be up in that room right now. I give anything to be in community. Mm -hmm. And I felt like my experiment had failed because what I found was I didn't know who I was. So I literally that day, I walked past a Greyhound station and I said, are there any buses to New York? So he could go back home because he had left home as a teenager to find himself, to explore the great outdoors, to be on his own. And he realized that he was entirely lonely and that he needed community because he to find himself really right to to find yourself within community but he also found himself through his retreat through three years of silence and essentially being in solitude and maybe the difference then between solitude and aloneness or loneliness that makes me think of a book by one of my favorite poets Bob Kaufman, uh, solitude crowded with loneliness. And one thing I find interesting, we don't talk much about that. I think we often, you know, growing up, think about it as you reach a certain point and you're good. I'll get my degree and I'm good. I'll get my degree and then that first job and I'm good in the field. Not only that yet. you're good, that you've made it. You yeah, reach the then, destination, like, you climb the mountain. I got to the peak of the mountain. I can just sit here and just cherish this beautiful view. But the whole time you missed 
everything that was there as you climb that mountain that you didn't see the squirrel that you know was or, or the flower you didn't stop to smell the roses because you were too busy focused on that prize and then when you get up there you may not it, it may be foggy up there right it may just be clouds you may not even even have a view so you just you missed out on now. everything else and now yeah you gotta come back now hours of work and you're not getting to the peak right you're coming down the peak and then it's like that's an interesting uh, analogy who am i i'm a mountain climber but now i'm descending i've already been up here are you are, are you a mountain climber or are you just someone who climbed a mountain i've thought about that when i would bike to oregon state prior to covid and people would be like oh you're a biker and i'm like no nah, i just commute I'm just getting from point A to point B because I think of a biker as being someone who does more than what I do. Mm -hmm. Right. So what does it mean for somebody else to define you versus you just doing something like that doesn't define me. I don't, I don't live up to that expectation. So how do we communicate those things to students as they look towards their careers, as they're getting into their fields and establishing themselves you can't there's no room for that or those discussions in the job search right no they are i mean to the extent that you have to know your why and i think that's what differentiates a lot of us from other individuals is our ability to communicate that why and help somebody on the other side of that interview table understand how this position is fulfilling for us because they want to know that you're committed to this work. And so if you can connect that dot and show how doing X, Y, or Z and helping this company or this organization advance and accomplish their objectives and how that helps you simultaneously achieve something within you, I think there's a stronger connection there other than I'm just trying to get paid. Because you're going to be more willing to show up and contribute and give more of yourself because it's tied to your sole purpose. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Soul Force Ones. A huge thank you to Will Duncan for joining us this week. You can find out more about him and his work at willduncan.org, on Instagram at willduncanclasses, or on YouTube as Will Duncan. You heard a segment from Zion Eye's old school track, Mike Jones, which talks about vocation, and the abstract Q-tip on a Tribe Called Quest song, Get a Hold. As always, thanks to OJ the producer for our theme song that you're hearing now. You can listen to more of his music at ojtheproducer.com. Make sure to join in for new episodes dropping every Monday. Until then, y'all. Peace. Peace.